Well, open with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark will be in chapter 14 today. We'll start reading in a few moments from verse 12 through 31. And just here at the head, looking back to last week, a word of thanks, public thanks to my dear friend and partner in ministry, Abe Stratton, for uh, preaching the Word from the book of Colossians. Um, I would just want you to know that I don't ask uh, these men to be ready with a whole book of the Bible memorized. Uh, it was his prerogative, and he can do that if he wants. I will never do that for you, <laughs> although I shouldn't say that. Actually, every time he does this, I think I should do that just for my own sake, but I'm grateful that this godly brother who gives himself to memorizing the Word is also in this kind of a role where we can benefit from it as we do from time to time, so thank you, Abe. Now, just a little heads up where we're going in the Word over the next few weeks. Next weekend, so this Friday and then Sunday, this Friday, Dan Kruva will preach for us. I'll preach on Sunday, and we'll be in 1 Peter, as Peter, who is a companion to Mark and from whom Mark would have gotten a lot of his material for this gospel, Peter, writing to first century Christians, is applying the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection to the Christian life. And so we'll preach from 1 Peter this coming weekend. The week after that, April 11th, we'll begin a short periodic series I'll return to from time to time called Redemption Songs, in which I preach from a song in the Bible. And we'll preach from the Song of Moses in chapter 15 of Exodus. And on that Sunday, we'll have a guest musician and song leader with us to lead us, and it just makes sense. Let's, let's preach from a song on a Sunday like that. Then in the afternoon on the 11th, we'll join together for an hour at 4.30 and sing a bunch of hymns together. I sure hope you can join us. So just a heads up as to where we're, where we're going in the Word, and we'll be back in Mark mid, mid-April. Now for now, we turn to Mark chapter 14. Now, maybe one reason you have given for not becoming a Christian, not giving your life in whole devotion and faith to the Lord Jesus is the failure of others who claim His name. Maybe there are some that come to mind that in claiming Jesus' name have in time turned against Him, have abandoned Him, and even betrayed Him. Maybe some that come to mind have not turned against Him, but have turned away from Him. And if you've instances in your mind of Christian leaders or Christians who have done that, uh, you would be right. That has and does happen. And I would just say to you this morning, you have all the more reason to turn to Jesus. Let's read together Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, and there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, 
Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him that he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Well, Christianity is a religion with a meal in the middle of it. And if the Word of God is true and the cross and the resurrection happened, then the universe is a universe with a meal in the middle of it. And all of history is a history with the meal in the middle of it. And today we come to that most meaningful meal. Our passage unfolds in three parts and we'll unfold our sermon in three parts. We'll prepare for a meal together. We'll eat the meal together. Then we'll go on a walk to work the meal off. All right, let's begin. Big meals require big preparations. Verses 12 through 16. Thanksgiving is one of those occasions for Americans that would be good and familiar to us where there's a particular place that's chosen for a meal. There's particular food that's picked out and prepared. There's a table that is set. You may be able to imagine this yourself. And then there's particular people that are gathered for that that occasion. And there's thanks that's given in prayer, and then there's a meal that is eaten. And then we retire to our couches or to the kitchen or whatever your assignment is, if you've lucked out and got an assignment on Thanksgiving. Hopefully you all clean up. But Thanksgiving is a good and familiar occasion in which we eat together and that eating has a particular meaning for a nation and, it's, and a people and its history and meals have a way of holding a people together and, and having the story held down the years. Well, Israel's own life was held together and her stories were passed on through, through meals. And this Passover meal was an important one. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover Lamb. This is something kids would have grown up doing with the family on the year. 
to commemorate the exodus of God's people from Egypt and his deliverance of them. And in this instance, in this place, everyone was preparing for the Passover meal, the Passover celebration. And there would have been an air of anticipation about the whole city of Jerusalem and those who are making their way there. This feast brought with it anticipation of being together and looking back and remembering all that God had done. And this meal itself had some particular elements to it if we were to turn to the story of Exodus where God's people were in bondage to Pharaoh and Egypt, servitude for 400 years. On the occasion of their deliverance, when God came to Moses to tell Moses what to say to Pharaoh, Moses would say it to Pharaoh and Pharaoh would harden his heart. But God gave his people very particular instructions that would make no sense militarily speaking. It was no strategy for getting out of 400 years of slavery, but it was God's plan to teach them and the world something about himself. And the elements in this particular meal would have included a lamb. They would have killed this lamb and marked the lintels on the doorposts with the blood of that lamb. And in that night, an angel of death would pass through all of Egypt and all the firstborn would die as a judgment on Egypt, but a judgment that would fall just as well on any Israelite home apart from a sacrifice and blood. And so as the angel of death passes over these homes who have entrusted themselves to the word of God and this sacrifice, so their home would be spared. And all of this was just one part of his deliverance of his people out of bondage. Salt water would be at the, the table with its own connotation and and unleavened bread and fruit puree, four cups of wine. I'll explain all those in a bit, bit of a few minutes. But there were certain elements that would have been collected around the table on the occasion of this meal, familiar elements. And there was a certain order to how this whole thing unfolded year on, on year. The youngest child at the table would say, how is this day different than any other? How is this meal different than any other. And this would be an occasion for the father of the home and the father of the family to rehearse the work of God for his people. And he might say something like this from Deuteronomy chapter 26. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly, and they humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. And we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, And with great deeds of terror, with signs and with wonders, and he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he would maybe explain to the family and to the children the particular meaning of each of these elements lingering long on that lamb and the meaning of the blood on the doorpost. And God's provision of a lamb for his people. 
explaining the salt water, representing their bitter tears under oppression and in the course of their deliverance. The unleavened bread, which was unleavened because it was eaten in haste, a reminder of the quick departure in the night. And four cups of wine for each, a reminder of God's fourfold promise to his people in Exodus chapter 6, 6 through 7, which I want to put to your ears this morning, for this is what they would rehearse together. Say therefore to the people of Israel, Moses was told, and, and each dad would say, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And again, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God's fourfold promise, I will and I will, I will, and each part of this meal pointing to a different dimension of the experience of deliverance from slavery in Egypt. God, the great and mighty and majestic and ever-loving and ever-faithful, promise-making, promise-keeping, delivering God. Yes, everyone in this city has been preparing for this meal, and they're looking forward to it. And the disciples are asking Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare to eat the Passover? They're fully expecting to share this meal together. They're expecting to share it with Jesus. And they're asking for Jesus' lead as to where they will share this meal on this occasion. And of course, Jesus is no assistant, but he is a servant, and he's on it. He's already got these things taken care of. And so he sent two of his disciples and said, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he, he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready and there prepare for us. And of course, the disciples do this and everything unfolds just like Jesus said that it would. And this is not terribly unlike what had happened back in chapter 11. It, I was even preparing this sermon thinking, it's almost like I've preached this section before. And it was just a, a, a side thought. And, and in the course of studying, I realized, no, we have worked through a section that's not terribly unlike this. Ahead of the triumphal entry, when Jesus instructs his two disciples to head into the city and to take a cult, which they'll find and to answer anyone who asks them what they're doing with a particular answer, and that they'll be allowed to do it. There's two disciples sent in. There's a mysterious meeting. Things happen in exactly the way as Jesus indicated. There are even a sequence of 11 words from chapter 11 in that instance and this instance here. In other words, Jesus works according to patterns, and he's got this whole thing under his control. He is making preparations of his own for this particular meal on this particular occasion of the Passover. Even the furnishings here indicate that he has the very place picked out to be set up just for them. If you've ever had company and you take them out for a nice meal and you think about, 
Do we need a private room? Or is that a loud restaurant at that time of day? A loud restaurant with lots of people and movement and crowded tables is a different experience of dinner together with companions than a private room in the back. And depending on the situation, you may want your own thing. My point is here that Jesus has this picked out just right with just the furnishings, and it's an, it's an upper room. And just as in the instance of chapter 11 ahead of the trial em- triumphal entry, I've suggested to you that, yes, of course, He's the divine Son. He could just imagine these things would happen and, and then speak into them and describe what will unfold. He could determine it, but neither of those are quite the pattern in Jesus's administration of his life in ministry. More likely, these are people he knows, and he's set things up, and he's made plans. He's been in and out of the city half a dozen times in the last number of days as we've been following him. And in this case, too, he made preparations. Thoughts haven't been invisibly put into these people's heads, and Jesus has had these conversations, and he has laid these plans and made these arrangements. Big meals require big preparation. And even as the whole city is preparing for just another Passover, Jesus is preparing for a very special Passover meal with a special group of people. Big meals require big prep. Well, this meal in particular will involve some unexpected guests. And we move from meal preparation now. We're going to sit down in the room, as it were, with Jesus and the disciples and share a meal. I won't take communion this morning, but this, of course, is where the sign of communion, the Lord's table, comes from. The, the church would repeat this on, on a loop at different intervals, not infrequently, often in many churches every week. There's good reasons to do that. There's fine reasons to do it less frequently. We'd put it on a cadence of every month or about every six weeks just because our nursery rotation is there, has people on first, second, third, or fourth, and we don't want you perpetually out of the Lord's Supper. In any case, every church repeats this meal, and it's precious to Jesus and to his people. And this is where it first happened. It would be possible in reading this to focus on the elements and, and the meaning of the Passover, which we'll do in a moment, and it's right to do that, but then to miss the drama that is in and around it and inside which the Passover meal is situated. I don't want you to miss that today. Mark frequently puts an event between two events, and we have Jesus betrayed and abandoned, and we have the Passover meal right in between. And there's something Jesus is saying about himself, yes, and there's something he's saying about us and to us about ourselves and our need. It's not to be missed. And there are two unexpected guests at this particular, particular meal. Jesus has a surprise for us regarding one who is eating the bread with them. His first words were not what they were expecting to hear. It's at least awkward. It leaves them sorrowful. That's not the tone of the Passover meal. They remember a hard night of hard deliverance, but deliverance nevertheless. And it's a celebration of God's salvation. 
And Jesus says as they sit down, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. There is someone among this gang who will betray Jesus, who will deconvert. One of the insiders of the insiders. This is Jesus' private meal in a private room with his closest companions. And he is indicating that one of them will betray him. One of them will do something grotesquely evil, for it is not unknown that Jesus has spoken of his coming death. There are opponents all around. The pressure is increasing on the disciples. They've hitched themselves to Jesus, and this appears increasingly, humanly speaking, a terrible, terrible, terrible decision. Hitching yourself to Jesus in this world is a bad decision. It really is. Unless he really is the son of God. It's a bad decision. And these guys were feeling that. And one of them apparently, now news to them from Jesus, will betray their Lord. And in this context, betray him and be complicit in his own death in an escalating situation of conflict, oh, that's bad news. A grotesque evil. And one of them who apparently was skilled at deceiving his closest friends because no one around the table has any idea who it is. Everyone's just sure it's not them. So they began to be sorrowful and to say to him and to one another, is it, is it I? So one after another, they, they go around the table and Jesus says, is it me? And Jesus has invited them to examine themselves. He hasn't called the one out by name at this point. He leaves this hanging there over the room. Now, one of the disciples knows exactly who he is. He might be saying this line, is it I, and falling in line with how he ought to respond, and the others are responding, but the others are asking, is it I, is it, is it me? And we can assume that each of them doesn't believe it will be them, but they also don't want it to be true of them, and they don't know who else it could be. This group of 12 has run together for a long time now. I just find it interesting that the one who will betray him has managed to keep that, that desire and that intention to himself. And for however long, this one who will betray Jesus had been entertaining thoughts of leaving the group or irritations with Jesus or disapproval of Jesus' handling of this or that situation. He's kept it to himself, even even. Within the last day, as the woman breaks the flask over Jesus' head and pours her future out on Jesus and entrusts herself wholly to Jesus, preparing his body for burial, Jesus says. Well, that must have been just unnerving. And pushed this one Judas, who's named verses earlier, over the edge. Now, Jesus knows what his purpose is. And Jesus knows how these things are coming together. There are some who want to kill him, but they don't want to do it with a crowd around. 
They don't want an uproar of one kind or another. And they need a way to kill him without everyone knowing it's happening, without everyone knowing that he's being taken. They need to find him in the quiet of some moment, and they need to take him and arrest him by stealth. And now we know how it'll happen, and Jesus knows it will happen. And Jesus has that man at this table. What a moment. We think of Jesus' life as a whole life of suffering, and that, that dinner was not an easy dinner. If they were sorrowful, how much more was Jesus sorrowful at what Judas would do? And as a kind of an aside, an inference here from the passage, I would want to say to all of us not to be surprised when some who go very, very far in religion and appear to be in Jesus' inner circle betray Him. Don't be surprised when that happens. Be careful not to get your head too messed up in how the news goes. Remember the Scriptures that we have in moments like this and the story that this current life is a part of. In the unbelieving world around us, and maybe that includes you, we'll tend to wag the finger at the church in general. Aha, look, you're all frauds. Well, that's not true. That's not true. But yes, some go very far with Jesus and betray Him. They not only walk away, but they turn against Him, and they turn against His people. But even in the believing community, churches can look at an instance like this where one leaves off the faith and wag their finger at other churches or other tribes or other, other expressions of Christianity that may be gospel faithful, but they get this belief different or they are famous for preaching and teaching on this or that thing for one reason or another. And we can turn in on each other. Friends, let's just remember that in the plan of God, Um, One of Jesus' best, one of those who was the closest with Jesus, betrayed him. And is Jesus culpable for this man's sins? Well, absolutely not. I have in the background of my mind here the shooting that took place in Atlanta in the last week and a half. Now, we live in a cruel world, and we have a cruel enemy, and we have an explanation for these things. And it's called Satan, and it's called the reality of evil. It is called sin in the heart of every person, which leads some to do the most, spiritually speaking, insane things in the universe and to commit grotesque evil. And this gentleman who opened fire on some eight Women, six of them were Asian women. You know the story. These massage parlors. I was a member at a church that preaches a gospel like ours. It says a lot of the same stuff we do. And everyone's trying to connect dots. We don't need to do that and to jump to conclusions. So I hope you're not guilty of doing the same. Sure, there are questions of culpability that we can ask. And should we find out that there were some wicked teachings or aberrant teachings at a given church, that's to be taken into consideration. But best I can tell, there's no reason to do that. And I'd sure hope that the worst sinner who leaves our church and 
commits the worst, most evil act isn't understood to be representative of what our church teaches in the same way that Judas is not representative of what Jesus teaches. Here's my point. We don't need to find some confirming element of our worst suspicions of people that are different from us in every act of evil that is unfolded before us out there. What we can do as Christians is look at any act of evil and say, that is precisely what the Bible describes. And I am amazed that more of that does not happen. The evil that wells up out of the human heart and the violence that is committed between men and women in this world is unbelievable. And it is amazing that God restrains so much of it. And oh, how we need a cross. And so repent and believe. I think that's the message in the instance of any, any, um, any national tragedy of a natural evil or moral human evil. And there's a good passage in the Gospels along these lines. Repent lest you likewise perish. You see people killed on the news. You hear of people dying in other places. Something happens in your own sphere. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is our only hope. Everything can come out of any human heart. And here at the heart of our story, we have a reminder of that in Judas who betrays the Lord himself. And hardly anyone knew Jesus better than Judas. Just some words on culpability and the meaning of grotesquely evil acts. Jesus had a surprise for us concerning one who was eating the bread with them. He was a member of the church, if you will. Oh, and he was warned, was he not? Wasn't he warned? It is one of the twelve who's dipping the bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So here's the message to those and concerning those who betray Jesus and turn against him and do not turn back to him. It will have been better for you if you were never born. And there's nothing any human being or human government can do by way of bringing justice to the situation. It is laughable to think that justice can be brought in by humans to these situations. We do our best. No, God will bring justice to this situation. And he feels it and cares more than any of us. Jesus has a surprise concerning one who is eating the bread with them. There is a surprise guest at this meal. One of them is a traitor. Well, Jesus also has a surprise concerning the bread that they are eating together. Yeah, this bread is a part of this Passover meal. But what Jesus does here in the course of this Passover meal, which includes many elements is he creates a moment where he inaugurates a new meal with a new sign, with a cup, and with bread. The Passover meal was celebrated 
to commemorate the Passover in the past. It pointed backwards, even as it created a confidence in God's willingness and ability to keep His promises in the future. But Jesus is saying, and what He says here, I am the future. All of God's promises are being fulfilled in me. I am bringing a greater exodus from a greater problem, the problem of sin. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Take, this is my body. There is no reason to make too much of the word is. This is a covenant sign. It's a symbol. The nature of the thing means we don't believe it. It's his physical body. This is my body. This is my blood. In other words, this represents my body and my blood. This symbolizes, this teaches you concerning my body and blood. And just like the elements in the Passover meal had a certain, certain meaning that they called to mind, so these elements of the bread and the cup have a certain meaning that they are intended to call to mind. And it is by calling these to mind that our faith is strengthened That God in His wisdom has given us His Word, but He's also given us these acts to do together, this meal to share together. And so we trust Him with it, and it's why we keep giving ourselves to the Lord's table as often as we do. Well, the Lord's Supper, it points back to the cross. He says, take, this is my body. He breaks the bread that represents His broken body. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This represents his own blood poured out for them as a lamb. And so the Lord's Supper looks, we could say, in five directions. You might be monodirectional in your thinking on the, the Lord's Supper. Well, I hope over time, subtly, in the things we sing, in the things that we say, in the prayers that we pray, you take on more spiritual perspective and direction. There are five directions, best I can count, going on here. It points us back to the cross as we repeat this sign. This sign also points us inwardly as we examine ourselves. Jesus has already invited His disciples. He's left the question hanging, who's going to betray me? And He's invited them to ask the question, is it I? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as the Apostle Paul writes to a New Testament church, there, there really are, are almost no stronger words in the Bible than when Paul says, you eat and drink judgment on yourself if you don't discern the body when you come together. And by body there, he means the people. He says, what you're eating isn't even the Lord's Supper. You're not waiting for everybody else. You're pigging out on it. So wait for one another. And if you don't discern the body, if you're not doing this together, don't call it the Lord's Supper. It's not my supper. I eat this with my people. So examine yourselves. So there's a look inward. There is certainly a look upward. He blesses it. He gives thanks for it. For God is the one who provides food and nourishment and every provision for our life. But He's also the God that frees us from our sin And so when we chair in the Lord's table, the cup and the the bread, we thank God for His salvation, even as we thank Him for the food and the drink. 
And there's a look around to the community. He didn't tell them how to celebrate this meal on their own later in the night. He prepares a room with a table and with seats. He speaks to them. He says, the Son of Man, His blood will be poured out for for many. He even has them drinking from one cup. They each would have had four cups. So remember God's fourfold promise. But in this case, it's not only do they not have their own cup, maybe they do have their own cup, but for the purposes of this sign, they're working from one cup. And that's to indicate that they're one people. And Paul, later in the New Testament letter, will speak of eating of one bread, which symbolizes that we're one people. And the point is, is that communion is not just your private communion with God and your relationship with God. We might as well do it alone. Read our Bible alone, take communion alone, just skip it when we come together. No, the reason we do it as the church and not as small groups and not as a college ministry and not a husband and wife when they're getting married on, the, on their wedding day. I won't do communion with you if you were thinking of asking me to do that. I will gently and gingerly let you know it's the church's ordinance and it's not, it's not for couples. The point is, is that this is the church's thing. And Jesus here isn't, isn't giving them instructions for how they will share in this meal with their families when they go home. He's actually sharing this meal with his new family, the church, in microcosm in this room, with these disciples, with Jesus, not the father of his children and a wife, but Jesus, the host of this meal and the the leader of this new family. And every church that comes together under the authority of Jesus and His preached Word to share in this meal repeats what we've seen right here on the page. So we look back, we look in an examination, we look up in thanksgiving, we look around at the community that Jesus has purchased for Himself. And we also look forward. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So yes, we look back, but we're also looking forward. And just note here that he has already said concerning one of them, uh, it would be better for that man if he had not been born. Let us not think that because Jesus is saying, I'll drink the fruit, the uh, the vine again when I drink it new in the kingdom and you all will be there. Now he's looking forward to drinking with them save one, Judas will not be there. Judas will be in hell. What else can it mean that it will be better if he had not been born? The Lord's Supper looks forward. But just because one is around the table and just because one has been given an opportunity to examine themselves and own their own rebellion against Jesus does not mean that you or I are safe. The ritual itself, even being present at that table with that bread and that cup and that host, doesn't do it. So don't put your hope in the elements. And there's a reason why we are very disciplined about explaining the meaning of the Lord's Supper when we come together. 
because I don't take it for granted that our idolatrous hearts won't start to invest more in the bread and the cup than we should. It is profoundly meaningful. Jesus gave us the sign. But let us not make more of it than Jesus does. It is a sign, and it points to Him, and He is the one who saves. So it doesn't matter how many times you've taken communion with us. And now when you hear us fence the table and ask you not to partake if you're not in Christ, um, you'll take that as seriously as you should, so I pray. But of course, we invite you to join us in Jesus. Because either you will drink the cup or Jesus will. Which is to say, that cup of Jesus' blood, which represents the wrath of God poured out on the Son of God, His wrath for sin, against sin, will either fall on Him for you or you will bear it yourself. But you can't, we don't here at our church believe in a cross as a nice idea or one of many ways to God we really believe that what Jesus suffered there, He suffered instead of us. And if our faith is not in Him, and if He is not for you this morning, the way, the truth, and the life, if He is not your sin-bearer, your sacrifice, your blood on your doorpost of your home, then you are not safe. So in this moment right here, there's some profound meaning, and it's exciting to learn who you're sitting in the room with Jesus, who is the Passover lamb. And I don't know to what extent they're connecting the dots. They connect it all later. And yet it's also a sorrowful moment because one of them will betray Jesus. And for as wonderful as salvation is, so betraying him is a horrifying, horrifying thought. So Jesus wraps up this meal with his disciples, speaking about drinking and eating anew with them in the kingdom, which we all look forward to. And then it says in verse 26, and they sung a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they close with a hymn. That's one reason to close a worship service with a song. We respond to what we've, we've heard. How can we not sing? How could they not sing? So they, they sang a hymn. And we don't know what exact song they sang. It may have been one of the Psalms of Ascent, a collection of psalms used as uh, God's people would sing on their way to Jerusalem around this time of year. Maybe it was Psalm 118 as they, they sang, of whom should they be afraid? What can man do to me? And they spoke of Jesus' triumph and the coming of the King and looked forward to that. And they sing of what God is doing in the, in, in the moment that they're in. I'm not sure what they were singing, but we can guess from some of the psalms that we've got. But they had to sing, and of course, Jesus leads them in a song. He's a song leader, and he's our song leader. He's our song leader this morning. Surely they had a sense of anticipation as they crossed the valley, and maybe a sense of relief. At this point, we may presume, <clears throat> because the next time Judas shows up, we'll be with a gang to arrest Jesus. We may presume that in the course of getting out of the upper room and heading over the valley to the Mount of Olives, that Judas has taken off. And maybe Jesus called it, and he knew his moment. He knew where the disciples and Jesus were headed. He was looking for an opportunity, and now one of them's gone. 
And maybe there's some relief that it's not me. Is it I, Jesus? And by the time they've crossed the valley, each of them have their answer. Well, we know who it is now. It's Judas. And maybe as well, there was some trepidation because because things are getting even more difficult and a betrayal is underway. And Jesus has talked about his own coming suffering and death. I don't know exactly what the feelings were there, but there is one more conversation to be had in this segment. We've prepared for the meal together. We've sat around the table and considered who we were with. And now we're going on a walk. And here are three things we learn on the way home. Of course, they've made their way to Jerusalem and back to Bethany several times now. And they may think they're going to make their way all the way back home for the night. They're not going to. For our purposes, three things we learn on their way on their way home. Well, the first thing, they learned something about God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives, verse 27, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. There are many actors at play in this story You've got Judas who will betray the Lord. You've got the religious leaders who Jesus has said will kill him and hand him over to be killed. There are many more actors to engage the story to come, each responsible for their own evil. And yet here we learn something about God. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the the sheep will be scattered. There are a quote from Zechariah 13. I will strike the shepherd. It's a little more subtle there that it's the father who will do this in the original place in the prophets, but Jesus interpreting that moment adds the I. The father will strike Jesus. The crucifixion to come is an act of God, not only an act of evil. This is a part of God's plan And the Father is in total command of things. In the same way that Jesus has been in total command of the situation, Jesus said, verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So so here, it is written, the Son of Man will be handed over and betrayed and crucified as God. It is written, as the Holy Spirit has said precisely according to God's plan. And yet, this one who betrays the Son of God will do it in his own fully responsible human sinful evil purposes. And it would have been better for him if he had not been born. And he will suffer judgment for it. So there are many responsible actors. God is in total command, even as Jesus is in total command. And this apparently is in no contradiction with one another. And so the most grotesque evil things that happen in our lives and around us, and the saddest things that happen in this life, are working together for the good of those who love Christ. And God has his purposes in every moment of history. And call that a mystery. I'm happy to call it a mystery. 
But both of those truths are true on the page. And Jesus doesn't, Jesus puts them together without any trouble. And so can we. You know, even in this moment here, Jesus is in command. He's trusting his Father. But we've had other moments in the story of our Bible where, where things seem good and out of control, but God was working his purposes. For this purpose, I have raised you up, the Lord says to Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So, so as God's people were in bondage for 400 years, which is an awfully long time, God, in delivering them through the Red Sea, had his own purpose to demonstrate his power in saving his people. And in this cross moment, Jesus is entrusting himself to his Father and to the Word written with the knowledge that through this incredible evil that is performed around him and against him and to him, that God is demonstrating his power to save. And so this morning, we've sung in a variety of ways already concerning the power of God to save. Now, God is at work setting things up and preparing the room even today. When we come together around the Lord's table, we could even say, God has gone before us. The Lord Jesus has gone before us to prepare the room for us. He's prepared all of us and he's called us together and he's gone to the cross and he's been raised from the dead and and he rules from heaven and he calls us together around the table. And even today, he is preparing people for that meal. God is at work in evil circumstances all about us to demonstrate his power. And it is not always plain as to how he is doing it, but oh, he is. And we must never say that anyone can act on him, even if they act against him. And so Judas's will betray Jesus in our own day, and they will act against him, but no one will act upon him. No one will thwart his purposes or stop him from meeting the day when he eats and drinks anew with us in his kingdom. as it is written. So we learn something about God on this little path home. And as we reflect on Jesus' trust in His Father, which is the best explanation for how calm He is, there's no panic here about the Son. We learn something about ourselves. We learn that our hearts are filled with pride. (laughs) Even though they fall away, I will not, Peter says. But of course, the first thing he has to say is something about them. All right, so you say we'll all fall away. I'll grant it. They might fall away. In fact, they'll all fall away. I trust you, Jesus. But I'm not going to fall away. I'm an exception to your rule. Peter throws shade on his friends. And it's just a reminder of the problem of human pride and our inability to see our wickedness and our unfaithfulness. Friends, you and I don't know how we would act in every circumstance under every kind of pressure. You and I sin every day in much less difficult circumstances than what Peter and the the crew are up against in the 
the hours to come. And none of us can say we're fully faithful to Jesus without fail or we could never fall away from Him. And this is just a reason not to hope in man, but in our Passover lamb. And not to hope in a leader. He is a leader. Look at this. Even though they all fall away, I won't. Truly I say to you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. That's sovereignty. Two rooster crows, and he knows he'll deny him three times by that time. That's very specific. 20 years ago, we were dealing with the openness of God proposal that God was finding out how things were going and was just this expert guesser. He's an expert guesser, and I'm glad that's good and blown over. Every five to ten years, it seems, there's another major challenge. Biblical anthropology is the major challenge of our day, but in that case, it was theology proper, the doctrine of God, which was a major challenge. And it seemed to resolve some tensions. But, okay, so God doesn't know, then that gets him off the hook for evil. No, he's not on the hook for our evil. But, oh, yes, he knows. Down to the rooster crow and down to the number of times Peter will deny him. And what does Peter say? If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then the last line, and they all said the same. You see, they're not as bold as Peter, (laughs) but they're following Peter. And so, friends, we need to appoint elders and pastors and preachers, and you need to pray for your elders and pastors and preachers and deacons, leaders of any kind around here, that we not lead in a spirit of self-reliance in our own strength. Pray that in the mornings, as I get up to preach, that I'm not worrying a whole lot about what you think and whether you like me. That's a dangerous road to go down. I don't worry a whole lot about what you think. I just love you. And I'm worrying about what God thinks. And that's what you want me to do. But pray it sticks. Pray our elders lead from the Bible and that we don't worry and fret over you and your opinions and what you'll do. Pray we lead you with full confidence in God and His Word and not relying on human strength or our craftiness as leaders or in turns of phrase or in how we or this place is dressed up. Having a strong ministry and a strong building or whatever. Self-reliance is a major temptation relying on human categories and human priorities for determining success in ministry is the beginning of so much failure that may even look like success in this world, and you'll just find out if you add the years. And as happens sometimes, a leader turns against Jesus or betrays Him. So our hearts are filled with pride, but we also learn about ourselves. The world that we live in is filled with pressure Friends, you and I will not hold up under the greatest of pressures apart from the Spirit of God and the grace of God. And these folks don't have the Spirit of God yet. Pentecost has not happened. They're plenty bold after it. And they'll even fulfill their own words and die with Jesus. 
upside down according to tradition for Peter, by crucifixion. Now, you and I will not be faithful apart from God's help, and we just need to own that. And it is a reason why we can be gracious with one another. This is no invitation to fall away. See, Jesus betrays Jesus. These fall away. If you fall away, there's no safety for you there. There's no comfort or assurance for you in that moment. You could just as well turn against him. You should better tell yourself that it'd be better for you that you weren't born lest you turn. This is not an invitation to fall away under pressure. It is an invitation for anyone who has fallen away to come back. And it is an invitation, even an exhortation to all of us to receive anyone who has fallen away back. Someone who has fallen away into sexual sin and adultery, someone who has fallen away into deceit and evil and lying, someone who has fallen away into any manner of sin, come back to the fold and Jesus will take you. And so will we. Judas doesn't turn back, and Jesus knows that he won't. But as long as you're alive, you can. We also learn something about Jesus here. In the end, Jesus is faithful, and in the end, Jesus is the only one who stands up under the greatest of pressures. The rest of us will fail. And in the end, even after the end, Jesus is a faithful friend to sinners, Jesus knew what his disciples would do in falling away, and he has called them together for this meal. (laughs) Jesus has told them, you'll all fall away, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. We're heading into it, guys, and none of you are going to stand with me, but on the other side, I'm going to be raised, and I'll meet you in Galilee. We'll see you there. That's what he's saying. He's saying goodbye here. We'll see you in Galilee. Yes, Jesus is a friend to sinners. And Jesus only invites sinners to his table. And Jesus loves Peter. And Jesus will be reconciled to Peter, and he'll see that that happens. And Jesus will commission Peter for his work. And so I can say on that basis that Jesus loves you. And it doesn't very much matter what you've done. If you return to him in repentance and faith, Jesus loves you. And you're welcome at his table anytime we set it here at Heritage. Friends, Christianity is a humbling religion. Our Savior was humiliated. We humiliated our Savior. So that's where we start. Every other religion that humanity will concoct puts yourself in a good category and everyone else in a bad one. Heresy hunting religions. Witch hunting religions. I'm afraid... America's new civil religion with its cancel culture, its anti-racism and all the rest, I'm sure you're reading about this, is a very unforgiving religion. (laughs) There is no God or grace in it. There is only get yourself on the right team and now or you're gone. Well, one way you know that it's not, not of God is if it doesn't humble you and if it's adherence. Don't cry grace, grace, grace. And if they can't welcome anyone into the fold. Now, Christianity is a humbling religion. Our Savior was humiliated and we humiliated our Savior. And so we aren't self-righteous here at Heritage by God's grace. And let me just 
state these things at our very best as God is at work in us. You and I ought not to be self-righteous and condescending toward one another in this room or people outside of this room because Jesus has not condescended in self-righteousness toward us, though He was righteous. No, we meet around a table that represents the broken body and blood of Jesus because there's no hope in you or me. And under every pressure, we're gone, but by the grace of God. And so let us remember Peter's words to his own readers. You can hear it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And be sober-minded and watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this warning. You oppose the proud. You do. You oppose us when we're proud. You oppose all who are proud. That you give grace to the humble. And because of the cross, we can be humbled. For the cross is a reminder of what we do when we are left to our own. We are violent. We aren't just violent to each other. We're violent against you and against your word and your promises. There's no hope in man. There's no hope in any leader. There is no hope in anything merely human. There is only hope in the divine human Son of God. And we entrust ourselves to Him this morning. Father, would you make us a church that waits on you, that entrusts ourselves to your glorious power, that boasts in our weakness because in our weakness you are shown to be strong, that boasts only in a cross and in a resurrected Lord, that confesses and professes the name of Jesus. And yes, Father, even as some betray you and turn against you, we confess that no one acts upon you and no one thwarts your purposes. And even as some fall away, we recognize that you are the God who is a friend of sinners and who welcomes sinners around your table. And even as we have fallen away and returned in repentance, and even if there is someone here who has fallen away but is here in repentance, we just thank you for welcoming us back. Just as Jesus did Peter, in Christ's name we pray, amen.